This morning we're going to study our, for our time of proclaiming God's truth, Psalm 77, and I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles there. Let's read together Psalm 77. We think of the book of Psalms as being written by David, and they are, but there are other authors, Moses, Asaph for one, and Asaph is the author of this particular psalm. When the Benedictine monks would go into the monastery, uh, Taylor, do you remember, or the Clampets, uh, how many, how long would it take them to get through the entire book of Psalms in their liturgy? Do you remember that? It was like one week. And so the monks in their liturgy, in other words, their daily prayers, whether individually or corporately, they would go through the book of Psalms in a week. So you can imagine with that kind of familiarity very, very quickly, the monks had memorized the entire book of Psalms. Now, why would they do that? Well, because the book of Psalms is the Christian's prayer book. And this is why many churches will not sing anything other than Psalms, because then you learn the Psalms. There are reasons to learn the Psalms. Let's read this particular prayer written by Asaph. It says, For the choir director, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint, Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night and will meditate with my heart. And my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters. And your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's take it verse by verse. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. Two things to be said about this verse. Number one, there are times where silent prayer ain't good enough. There are times where we need to go to God 
voicing our prayers. Now, why? Well, because sometimes silent thoughts and meditations don't quite get at what's in our heart. And if you read here, it's very clear that he is actually making noise. My voice rises to God. He cries aloud. In other words, he was in such turmoil that it wasn't enough for him to think thoughts of God, to think thoughts of his oppression. But he cried out to God. And it's a wise uh, pastor who told a friend of mine that it would be good for him to learn during his devotions to pray aloud. Some of you might have trouble having your heart stay with your thoughts and or your thoughts stay with your heart. And I would encourage you to try to pray aloud, actually saying out loud the words as you pray. This is what Asaph is doing. And there's another thing to notice here. Note that he is, when he's tormented and oppressed, that he doesn't go to another person. He doesn't go to his wife, to his husband. He doesn't have a husband. Um, he doesn't go to a friend. He doesn't try to uh, solve his problems by going to anybody but God. And a very great temptation of ours to act as if God is not alive and is not a father who cares for his children and to seek remedies from man. And uh, man is a very limited capacity, but God is of an infinite capacity. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. Verse 2, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. And so again we see this theme of being in trouble, him going to the Lord. And then he says that in the night his hand was stretched out and it was stretched out without weariness. So it's clear that the torment he was going through, the oppression he was going through, was such that uh, night did not give him relief. But at the night he felt the burden and he felt it acutely. And so... He was not falling asleep. He was not able to put it to rest. But relentlessly, this suffering and oppression was upon him. And then verse 2 ends with, my soul refused to be comforted. What does it mean, my soul refused to be comforted? Well, you'd like to say that it's he's simply describing a statement of fact. But if you've ever known and dealt with souls, you know that there are certain souls who do refuse to be comforted. And sometimes this may be true of you. Spurgeon, in his comments on this, uh, refers to this man hugging his chains. It's a good image, isn't it? And some of us are people who perpetually hug our chains. As we complain about them, we hug them. They're precious to us. Uh, you think of Eeyore. Eeyore hugged his chains. He was constantly keeping track of all the reasons he had to feel like nobody loved him. I had an older woman in my church up in Wisconsin that when I'd go visit her, she'd start in with her mantra. And so after knowing her a while and she was being convinced of my love for her, I'd just call her Eeyore. Well, how is Eeyore today? And she'd kind of get a wry sort of Scottish smile on her face. And then she'd tell me all the things that were wrong with her and she'd hug her chains. Well, it's clear that Asaph is refusing to be comforted because he says it. My soul refused to be comforted. 
Verse 3, when I remember God, then I am disturbed. Now, where does this come from? It's kind of a negative theological statement, isn't it? You're going to say something about God, what would you say? If you were going to get a book published by an evangelical publisher, what would you say? Rejoice. Yeah. You certainly would not say that God disturbed you, would you? Is God disturbing? No, the truth is, for many, many, many people, God is not disturbing at all. Years ago, J.B. Phillips, the author of the paraphrase of the New Testament used in Britain, wrote a book called, Your God is Too Small. I remember a few years ago, some famous newscaster, I don't remember who it was, saying that, uh, that his God was not angry, that his God was bigger than that. No, his God was smaller than that. And right here in the confession of the psalmist Asaph, we see a statement that's very, very clear about the nature of God to those who know God. But there are many people who are religious who don't know God. And their God is an idol. And their God is bigger or smaller than being wrathful. Their God never scares them. As a matter of fact, having served for a decade in the mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, my experience is that the mainline churches exist to create idols that never, ever scare anyone. They're simply a perfect representation of the editorial pages of the New York Times, all the best thoughts of the best people of our country. And so we look at the God of liberals, and that's a God that looks very much like what we wish we were if we're seeking tenure at Indiana University. And if we're going to be evaluated by the students, that's the God of mainline liberalism. Well, what's the God of evangelicalism? Is it a God that's better? Yes. Oh, yeah, our God's much better, isn't he? Our God is the God of Jabez. Every day, in every way, if you have hope, the world is getting better and better. Can you imagine Jabez following up the prayer of Jabez with the prayer of Asaph? And it would start off with Asaph saying, I remember God and then I am disturbed. Well, if you know anything about that million, 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 million bestseller published by an evangelical publisher in Multnomah, you know that it bore no resemblance to the prayer of Asaph. And so, why would Asaph say that his thoughts of God disturbed him? Well, it was because Asaph knew the living God. He knew that the book of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. He knew that as all the godly have said through the ages, in the godly fear and love embrace. 
He knew that all the perfections, the attributes, the personality characteristics of God exist in perfect harmony with each other. He didn't have a theology that said that God has one part of him which is justice and holiness and another part of him which is long-suffering and mercy and love and that the justice and holiness of God are in perpetual conflict with the love of God and the New Testament is all about how love triumphs. Which is really the theology of most evangelicals. That the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was wrong. Now, they'll never be impious enough to actually say it. But you'll hear it all the time. But let me ask you, if it's true that the Old Testament was wrong and the New Testament is right, why do the lambs and why do the goats point to the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins? So we look at the Old Testament and see the sacrificial system. What does it point to? It points to the Lamb of God on the cross shedding His blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so God the Son is appeasing the wrath, is a propitiation to God the Father. And they're not in war with each other because the Bible tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. And all through the Gospel of John we see Jesus saying that he is doing the work of his father. And so this terrible, obscene specter of the Son of God on the cross Dying for our sins is the love of the Father and the love of the Son for the Father. In other words, God, all of His attributes exist in perfect harmony with each other perpetually. And anybody who says that we can put to death the fear of the Old Testament and the justice of God and have the love of God be all that remains has never looked at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the perfect melding together of God's justice and holiness and of his compassion and his love. And that's why in the godly, fear and love embrace. That's why our God is large enough to hate sin perfectly. To be wrathful. To have a place reserved for Satan and all those who follow him in defying the Son of God called hell. David Carell is one of the men that I have the privilege of working with. And David has been endlessly bringing up with me and other men recently the importance of restoring the judgment of God to the consciousness and hearts and faith of Christians. Make no mistake about it. The day will come when all of us will stand and give an account, not for every action, not for every word, but for every idle word. I'm quoting scripture. And so there are many, many, many reasons for a godly and an honest man to say what Asaph says here. I remember God and then I am disturbed. Spurgeon says about this, the justice, holiness, power and truth of God all have a dark side. And indeed, all the attributes may be made to look black upon us if our eye be evil. In other words, if we're in a situation where our judgment and our faith have been 
misdirected or oppressed by the evil one. All the attributes may be made to look black upon us if our eye be evil. Even the brightness of divine love blinds us and fills us with a horrible suspicion that we have neither part nor lot in it. In other words, even the love of God can be a source of terrible oppression for us as we think that we are not among the elect, those called by God, those he gives the gift of faith to. We can know the love. We can be convinced we're a cast off. Now, this is a very important point. Would you ever have thought to find that in the Bible? Would you ever have thought to have somebody in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit acknowledge that this was their thought of God? That they are disturbed by Him? Would you ever have thought that a godly man like the Baptist preacher Spurgeon would say that even the brightness of divine love blinds us and fills us with a horrible suspicion that we have no part in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, just a few words later, here's what Spurgeon writes about himself. He says, Alas, my God, the writer of this exposition well knows what thy servant Asaph meant, for his soul is familiar with the way of grief. What a, what a pitiful people we have become. And in so many ways, we have so many different things we can use to remove any thought of the terror of God, any thought of the suffering of Spurgeon from our lives. Almost the minute we are oppressed, we label it depression, which makes it clinical. And then we go to the doctor for drugs. And one thing academics hate is me making a statement like that without qualifying it. So, this is a test. This is just a test. For the next 60 seconds, I will give you a qualification that will make you then able to re-engage this sermon. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. Okay, no, I don't think all drugs are bad. I mean, come on. You know, be adults. In understanding, be men. And no, that means women, too. This is a test. I mean, pretty soon all I'd ever do is tell you what I'm supposed to tell you. And then what good would I be? You know? Okay, listen. The minute we're oppressed by Satan, what do we do? We label it depression, which makes it clinical, and then we take drugs. And then we fall from 10,000 feet into soccer. And between the YouTube replays and the Fox Soccer Channel and our own game and alcohol and drugs and coffee and cigarettes and sex and lust and nice houses in our children we never have to think about our position before a holy God. And we never have to be terror-stricken by God because our theology has solved that problem for us. God of the New Testament whooped up the God of the Old Testament. 
In other words, we're pathetic because everything about our construct spiritually is aimed carefully at avoiding any suffering. And even as we die, a steadily increasing morphine drip will send us off into la-la land. All right. Now, I'm not saying that painkillers shouldn't be used effectively with people in the terminal stages of cancer. But do you get my point? Do you think that God has made the eyes that see and the eyes that are blind, the ears that hear and the ears that are deaf? Do you know I'm quoting scripture when I say that? Do you think that God has ordained suffering? Do you think God had Asaph thinking what he was thinking? Do you think it's productive for Asaph to think it? Do you think it's productive for you to look honestly in the face of what Asaph was thinking and to say, this is my prayer? Do you think it's good for Christians to be truthful? You know, one of my greatest challenges as a preacher is to get evangelical Christians to acknowledge the truth. And you say, oh, yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes it. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I can get you to acknowledge that and get you to recite that in your sleep. I'm talking about the truth of who you are. And I'm talking about the fact that there is no such thing as the victorious Christian life. None. Except the victorious Christian life of being truthful and honest. I know a lot of pastors. I talk and write, communicating with a lot of them. I've been in the ministry almost 25 years now. And I'll tell you something about pastors. It is a tough business being honest about themselves. And it is a really tough business being honest with their people. Because all the forces and all the stars and constellations are lined up to turn every evangelical church into a cesspool of lies. Hello, how are you this morning? I'm fine. How are you? Thank you very much. Wonderful sermon, wasn't it? And then we all go home. The minute we get in the car and the doors are shut, the fight with our wife resumes as it stopped when we got out of the car. (laughs) But we're fine, thank you. My favorite metaphor, when I think of churches that are dishonest, is to think of the cosmetics counter of Nordstrom's where everybody that's ugly sits and gets painted. And the women exclaim over how much it's helped them. And it is hopeless. But they pay lots of money to think that there's hope. And the whole system lies to them. Let your adornment be that of your heart. Now my saying, <laughs> you know, this, I'm not saying that it's wrong to use eyeshadow <laughs> or eyeliner or whatever it is or rouge. But think about the rouge of the ruses of Christians that are always lying to each other. 
you realize that missionaries are paid to lie to you? Every single communication you come from them is about their victorious Christian life and how many people have believed. And when you get a precious letter from a missionary that says, all hell is broken loose and it's hopeless and I'm depressed, you like frame it. You say, God bless you. Now I recognize your ministry because that's my ministry. And have you ever known somebody raising support? Do you know that there are actually large Christian organizations that tell the people that work for them that are raising support that they are never, ever, ever to tell people that their support raising is going badly because that will make it go badly. And so I had a friend once raising support, and I'd ask him every week or two, how is your support raising going? And he'd say, oh, things are great, Tim. And finally, one day I looked at him and I said, hey, dude, you're a liar. Because my wife knows your wife. <laughs> you know, it's time for reality. I might narrow it down a little bit too much. Uh, and I said, why do you always tell me things are great? And then his face was crestfallen and he said, well, you know, a week ago things were really not very good. But this week things are wonderful. And I gave up. I gave up. You know, the closest you get to the truth is admitting a week ago things weren't so good. Why is it that we think that we should lie? Well, because we've been taught a false view of sanctification. And Stephen's going to preach on this in a little bit, aren't you? Right? Yeah. We've been taught that both sanctification and justification happen at the same time and are both fully complete here and now. But. Justification is a work that is complete at a point in time. Sanctification is never complete. And that's why God That's why God kills your children. You say, "Oh, how could he say that?" I say because I grew up watching the faith of my parents as God killed 3 of their children. My brothers. And I heard my parents say they were never as sure of the love of God as when they walked away from the fresh grave of one of their children. That is sanctification. And all this, and I'm going to be more delicate than the Apostle Paul would be, all this bunk, okay, of how... You know, if we just have the faith to pray the prayer, if we just name it and claim it, if we just watch Trinity Broadcasting Network enough and give our, our money to the right Benny Hinn, all this absolute rot that bears no resemblance to all the people that we read about in Scripture, that teaches us that if we just have the right kind of faith, we will never be the sinner of Asaph, who says that he finds God to be terrible. We'll never think of the love of God as something we may not be the recipients of. We will never utter these things in public because, after all, what would people think of us? It would be obvious we didn't have the victorious Christian life. So let's keep lying. And so we go to our small groups and we say, how are you? And we do the same thing we did in the morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? And then the minute we speak of sin in our hearts, you know, uh, I have to admit this last week that um, 
And I'm not going to utter the sin because I don't know a sin to come up with that will make you comfortable. Um, but whatever the sin is that somebody brings up in a small group, what is a small group leader told to do? Well, you know. Shut it down. <laughs> People will be uncomfortable with sin. Shut it down. And so the church is what? It's the cosmetics counter of Nordstrom's. Everybody sits there. How are you? Fine. Thank you. How are you? And we think that this has any resemblance to the godly people of Scripture. My dad used to talk about how evangelical publishers, he was one, so was my father-in-law, how they rewrite the Bible. And some of his best columns were him rewriting portions of Scripture. And they were hilarious. How would we rewrite the life of David? How much of it would survive? How would we write, rewrite the life of Abraham? How would we rewrite the life of Peter? How would we rewrite the life of Paul? How would we rewrite the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary? You say, well, there's nothing about her in the Bible that's a failure. Oh, yeah? Are you Roman Catholic? Where did Mary fail? Well, it's clear something not entirely positive is going on when Jesus says, Who is my mother? You remember that little thing? Little detail, little Protestant detail. Protestant reformers must have stuck it into the Bible, right? <laughs> Who are my brothers? The whole Bible would be completely different if it was issued by us today, wouldn't it? Be honest. And this psalm wouldn't be there, would it? We'd give it volume, and it would disappear, whatever the drug for depression is today. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. Did you know that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's my hero went, if I remember correctly, four years in the ministry oppressed by Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, believing that he was a cast-off. Do you know what good that does my soul to read that about Martin Lloyd-Jones? I'm so encouraged by that. You say, you're twisted. I say, yeah, and so are you, and it's about time for you to get in touch with yourself. We all twist it. It's the meaning of original sin. You have held my eyelids open. This means that <clears throat> when he sighed, his spirit grew faint. He was not able to sleep. You remember it says in Psalm 127 that the Lord gives sleep to those whom he loves. Always take it for granted that we can sleep. But it's a gift of God. And even sleep was robbed from him. He had toothpicks in his eyes. He could not close his eyes. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. 
I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. In other words, he remembered times not so long ago when he had similar oppression and he was able to sing in the night. What a comfort. Think of Paul and Silas. He went back and thought over the years of long ago, verse 5. He remembered, he meditated with his heart, his spirit pondered. One of the curses of the iTunes generation is that you never meditate. The times that you would have meditated are now filled with the beat. Fascinating section in The Closing American Mind by Alan Bloom on what Walkmans did to young people. And so many of you, if I talk to you, your conversation is, and I'm going to use a large word, go home and look it up, V-A-P-I-D. Your conversation is vapid. In other words, it's devoid of anything improving. What is it? Well, it's endless repetitions of comedic lines or scenes from The Princess Bride. Or what? It's vapid. What? Napoleon Dynamite, Monty Python. Because you've never meditated. You have never given yourself to serious reading, to serious thought, to serious discussion. You've never had thoughts outside of yourself. Everything is an orgy of self-entertainment and self-infatuation. And some of you have highbrow taste and some of you have lowbrow taste. And the highbrow taste people will talk about 20th century composers and the lowbrow taste people will talk about, I don't know, lowbrow stuff. All right, what do you want me to say? You know, Toby Keith? <clears throat> when I was in... When I was in university getting my degree in history, I took a class called In Praise of Folly. And it was a class that studied Erasmus's uh, work called In Praise of Foolishness or Folly. The thing I found humorous about the class, it was taught by a visiting professor from England, and his name was Michael J. Screech. <laughs> S-C-R-E-E-C-H. I thought it was ironic that... Screech would teach us, teach us about ecstasy and folly. Anyhow, I learned there that the word ecstasy is the Greek word stasis to stand and ek, out, to stand outside of yourself. And if you've had a seventh heaven experience like the Apostle Paul, you know that to be in ecstasy is what? To be able to stand outside of yourself. In other words, finally to be relieved of your self-awareness and self-infatuation and self-absorption. And there is nothing more precious that God can give to you than to have a moment in time when you have no thoughts of yourself and only of God. And so what's the opposite of it? Well, the opposite of it is to be completely self-absorbed and never to have a moment that you have any thoughts of God or anyone else. And there are many people who have made this a high principle and commitment of their lives. When you talk to them, 
every single thing they say is either directly about themselves or quickly leading you there. In other words, sometimes they'll try to shake you off the trail of what they're doing. But, bam, you're back there in a couple of seconds. What are you like? Do you have any thoughts of God? Do you have any meditation? Do you ever escape yourself? Ever. Is there ever silence in your life that isn't sleep? Are you uncomfortable that I'm asking you these questions? Does everything have to be filled with YouTube that isn't work or study or sleep? You say, well, I don't ever watch YouTube. Well, all right, whatever you do, television, romance novels, I don't know what it is. Watching your kids' soccer games, I don't know what it is. Do you ever have meditation? You ever think of God? Are you ever able to escape yourself? His spirit ponders verse 6. Then verse 7, will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Now again, would this get past a publisher that publishes the prayer of Jabez? Look at the list. The prayer of Asaph. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God's forgotten to be gracious? Is he in anger withdrawn his compassion? It's not a positive confession, is it? And it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it must be useful. It must be helpful. So how is it helpful? Well, because those are the questions that we all have. I mean, how many times this week have I heard these questions from you personally? I have. I had a guy say to me this week, every time I take a godly step, I suffer, and it's painful. And he didn't quite say it, but what he was saying was, and I'm done with it. And I'm bitter, and I'm resentful, and I'm jealous, And every evil thing consumes my heart. And this is a guy who's young. He'll get much better at saying those things. And so these are the questions of our hearts, aren't they? Aren't they? Aren't they? Are they? Now, you read these questions through, and they constitute something called a reduction to absurdity argument. Because the answer is in the asking of the question to those who know God. Do you understand that? As we go through, we know the answer. Will the Lord reject forever? And the people say... And will he never be favorable again? And the people say, has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? You're right. You're not sure. The answer is no, 
We all know the answer. We all say the answer. But the answer is also, I'm not sure. And so where does he go from there? He goes to history. Okay? He goes to history. And watch what happens as we come to the end. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. What deeds do you have to remember? Well, for him, he remembers God's actions in biblical history of redeeming his people. He says, surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. So what is the antidote to the oppression of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies? What is the antidote? What is the prescription? What's the medicine? What's the helper? How can we be helped? We're honest. We go to God with our honesty. This is a prayer. And then we remember salvation history. All right? That's the prescription. Not to lie to yourself about what you're really thinking. Not to take drugs. Not to do alcohol. Not to entertain yourself with lust. The answer is to remember the acts of God. That's the answer. In other words, you have to know the Bible. You have to be doctrinal. Jesus isn't enough. You've got to know Moses and the Israelites. The New Testament isn't enough. You've got to know the Egyptians and the Israelites. You've got to know Moses. It's not enough to know the cross. You have to know what happened to the Egyptians when they were killed. You have to be a student of the Word of God. Every last jot and tittle of it. After all, those of you who are men are in the Middle Age, you're a student of every last jot and tittle of the IRS tax code. <laughs> so how about the Bible? And so here he goes. I'm going to remember the mighty acts of God. And here they are. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. What was the sound? Your arrows flashed here and there. What were the arrows flashing here and there? The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Remember Jonathan Edwards said that when he finally came to believe that God was right, to set his affection on some and not on others. Do you remember what he says happened next? The next thing that happened is he said, all of a sudden I began to find thunder, a great, great comfort to my soul. Seems like it's a th comfort here, doesn't it? He says, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, what's the thunder? What's the lightning? And what's the waters? And what's the earth shaking? You all know what it is, right? This is when the Egyptians, after constantly doing the wrong thing, finally got their act together after God killed their firstborn children through the, the angel of death. And they let the Israelites go. But then they thought, oh, we were stupid. There's the gross national product of our, of our country going into the wilderness. We've got to go get them. So they mount their chariots. They go out into the wilderness. And God tells the Israelites through Moses to stop because he says, I'm going to make a great whoop up. And it'll glorify my name. 
God is self-absorbed. And he said, you just stay here. So they stood there, and here come the chariots, all the military might of Egypt. And the Israelites start saying, why didn't you let us die back in Egypt? We didn't need to leave. Look at what's about to happen to us. Moses, help us. And the chariots are thundering. And then in the nick of time, which is always the way God works, which is why if you're hasty, if you want God on your schedule and you're going around demanding that people jump when you say jump, you won't see God's deliverance because you'll solve your problems, you'll make your own cistern, you will burn your own fire. But the Israelites had no choice. They were between a rock and a hard place, and Moses told them to stay. The nick of time, God opened up the waters. Is that how it happened? No, that's not how it happened. God had Moses lift up his hand. In other words, God was pleased to use a sinner. And when that hand got lifted up, you remember what happened? The waters parted. The nick of time. And, oh, they were angry. They had to wait. Nick of time, it opens up, and then what happens? They go across the Red Sea. And boom, 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 here come the Egyptians. And they're going to catch them. And they've got bloodlust because all their oldest sons were killed. Boom, boom, boom. And they go into the midst of the water. And nature, Mother Earth, Gaia, all of a sudden gets confused. And the God of love turns red in tooth and claw. And. The thunder and the lightning and the waters and death. Right? Death. Is that your God? Does that comfort you? Or is that a scandal to you? Honestly, is that a comfort to you or is that a scandal? Esau came out of his depression by meditating on the mighty arm of God that killed the Egyptians. How much are you identifying with God? All paths lead to heaven, and therefore all people will go to heaven. And God is your choice, and other people have their choices. Listen, one day the judgment seat of God is going to be the greatest scandal you've ever heard, and you will tell every preacher who ever preached to you that they lied to you when you see that judgment seat of God. Because God is a God of holiness and justice. And he takes personally your relationship to Jesus Christ. And so what happens is they get out in the middle of the water and the water, bam! And the thunder and the lightning and they're dead! And the Israelites are alive. And then we get Miriam's song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. The Lord my God, my strength, my song has now become my victory. The Lord is God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Good good sermon, Pastor. Now, If that's not your God, you have an idol. And it's no wonder you can't confess what Asaph confessed about being terrified by God. All right? You understand what I'm saying? And so you have your choice. You can serve a God made by your own hands who doesn't scare you. You can serve the living God who is written of in the book of God. 
Those are your choices. But I'm not done. Do you realize that this God that we're speaking of not only killed the Egyptians, but do you know why the Egyptians went out into the wilderness to chase after the Israelites? Do you know why they did that? Do you know why? The Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, tell me about your God. He kills Egyptians, but he doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart. Who is your God? He's an idol. Do you understand this? You're going to be biblical or you're not going to be biblical. Now, you all say to me, oh, yeah, but there are certain theological truths in Scripture that are essential and certain that we can dismiss without any long-term harm to our souls. And amongst these truths that we may neglect to no harm to our souls are that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I mean, really, who, who needs to believe that? Well, what do you think he's going on and on about the terrors of nature for? Who were they terrors to? Not to the Israelites. They were a comfort to them. They were terrors to the Egyptians. He is taking delight in the destruction of those who defy God. And they defy God. The Bible tells us God hardened their hearts. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, if you have a God who sometimes just can't help it, what his people do, you know, the, the things that he has made, that, that he's, he tries to, like, not notice, and finally, when it just rises to the level of an impeachable offense, then he kills them. You know, where is God in all this? You say, oh, 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 pastor, you're making God the author of evil. No, I never said God is the author of evil. What I said is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You say, yeah, but then he's the author of evil. I say, okay, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Come on, I'm in a bind. This is my book. I'm supposed to preach it faithfully. What do you want me to do? You want me to just be silent about that? You know, pastor, there's some truths that are just too difficult for us. You know, shut up about them. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Shut up about them, I said. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I told you, shut up. Elders, tell them, shut up. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You're making God out to be the author of evil. No, I'm not. I'm simply quoting Scripture. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Preacher, look, it's the first Sunday of a new semester. We have enough difficulties at IU. We don't need to come to church. I don't come to church to be scared. I come to be comforted. Hey, listen. This book is either true or IU is true. That's it. If this true book is true, IU isn't true. I'm not saying that absolutely everything that's taught at IU is not true, nor am I saying that IU always teaches things that aren't true, nor am I saying that Indiana University professors are always opposed to the God of Scripture. Okay. Either IU is true or this book is true. And if this book is true, then you will count it precious, and you will count precious the God that it reveals to you. And when you run into things like the Bible saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you'll say, I believe that. I believe it. 
And people say, well, how can God not be the author of evil if he hardened Pharaoh's heart? And you say, I don't know. And that's all you have to say. What are the options? The options are defying God, having a small God. The options are being a liberal. Yeah, you might not be as, a, as, as, as clearly a liberal as they are. In other words, your liberalism might be much further closer to biblical faith than their liberalism, but you're, you're on the path. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And that's where I'm going to end. You led your people like a flock. God is the shepherd of Israel. And God the shepherd knows the sins of our hearts. God knows the thoughts of our minds. God knows our sleeplessness. God knows when our heart is to break. God knows when we have been betrayed by friends and by by our husbands and by our wives. God knows the thoughts of unborn children who are about to have their lives taken by Planned Parenthood. God knows us. Jonah couldn't flee him. And he is the shepherd of those hearts. He's not the shepherd of the heart that has prepared itself and is pristine and has made itself ready. He is the shepherd of hearts that are terrified, that are depressed and oppressed, that have no hope, that are submitting to the accusation of Satan. He knows the hearts, mine and yours. He knows us. And he is our shepherd. After all, if we were able to come to him with pristine hearts, why would we need a shepherd? (laughs) And what kind of people are sheep? What kind of sheep are people? Well, pretty dumb. Pretty doggone dumb. You know what we are? We're a sheep caught in the brambles, ripping at its coat, at its wool, and absolutely unable to extract ourselves from our dilemma. I'll never forget seeing that one day on the farm. This is stupid, stupid, stupid sheep. Now, sheep herders tell me they're not stupid. All right, they're not stupid, but this sheep was. And it was in a barbed wire fence, and it had no initiative and no drive, no self-reliance. It just stood there. And so you had to rescue it. And that's who we are. My father wrote a psalm of wandering. He said this, Lord, you know I'm such a stupid sheep. I worry about all sorts of things, whether I'll find grazing land, still cool water, a fold at night in which I can feel safe. I don't. I only find troubles, want, loss. I turn aside from you to plan my rebel way. I go astray. I follow other shepherds, even other stupid sheep. And then when I end up on some dark mountain, cliffs before, wild animals behind, I start to bleed. Shepherd, shepherd, find me and save me or I die. And you do. Amen.